Ladies and gentlemen, pray silence for one of our greatest poets, Mr. Siegfried Sassoon. <clears throat> when I'm among a blaze of lights, with tawdry music and cigars, and women dawdling through delights, and officers in cocktail bars. I like movies almost as much as I like poetry. And one of the directors I really, really like is a guy called Terence Davies. Terence Davies is a guy who made the film A Quiet Passion, which was about Emily Dickinson. You might remember that as the movie everybody saw and realised that Cynthia Nixon was actually a really good actor and on-screen presence. Alongside Patterson, it was one of the first movies I'd ever seen to put actual poetry on screen in a way that made sense and didn't detract from the narrative. If anything, it actually adds to the narrative in that movie. Terence Davies also made a beautiful, sad movie, nothing to do with poetry, called The Deep Blue Sea, which is probably one of my favourite things I've seen in the last five years. And I had heard that Terence Davies had a new project in the works over the last few years. He was making a movie about the British World War I poet Siegfried Sassoon. So I should be right in the pocket for this thing. Love Terence Davies. Love movies. Love poetry. What could go wrong? We're great admirers of your poetry, Siegfried. Before you take offence, Ivor, we like your work too. Careful, Stephen. That was almost enthusiasm. Perhaps they will play one of your charming songs, Mr. Novello, and then we could dance to it. I can't tempt Stephen, though. Why not? Because I only do the Velita, and only when pressed. Here's the Roger Ebert review. The writer says, It's as if we are floating above the material, touching down in different places at the filmmaker's discretion. Having a poet for a subject only heightens that feeling. And I'll come back to that in a second. Having a poet for a subject only heightens that feeling. The images are supplemented by the verse of Siegfried Sassoon, read by the two actors who play him, Jack Loudon and Peter Capaldi. Davies hops between Loudon's past and Capaldi's current time frames, visually morphing the younger actor into the older on one occasion. There are also musical numbers sprinkled throughout, as well as war footage from World War I, the conflict the real-life Sassoon objected to in 1917 after spending time on the front line. Now, if that sounds like a mess, if that sounds disjointed and confusing and like it would be hard to pull off, it's because it really is. It really is a giant mess and Davies does not land this film in any way at all. Just coming back to that line, having a poet for a subject heightens this feeling of floating above the material. I really don't think that having a poet for a subject should mean that the narrative should be choppy and disorienting. I mean, A Quiet Passion wasn't like that. Patterson is the most linear film you could find. It even has title cards for the names of the days. And poems can jump around in time in a way that's a little bit harder to do in a novel or a short story, but hey, Siegfried Sassoon still experienced time as linear. He has a fairly straightforward life. To me, all this jumping about, which is only one of the problems with this movie, it feels like Davies doesn't trust us to be interested in his subject 
it's not just the jumping backward and forward. Although the editing of this movie, I was sitting there at the Nova and I thought, maybe we just got the rushes? Maybe this isn't the actually finished film? It is that jarring. The people who are playing these characters, the casting, they're not convincing at all. I mean, Jack Loudon, God love him, he tries pretty bloody hard with a script that is near unreadable. Um, he's the guy from Slow Horses. He was in Dunkirk. Davies loves to film an actor crying. Unfortunately, whenever Jack Loudon goes to cry, he looks like he's about to laugh. So that's very confusing. Famously, Siegfried Sassoon was friends with and maybe had a bit of a thing with uh, Wilfred Owen, who's another World War I poet. To me, that is the most interesting part of the story. Two poets coming together, the film puts them together, um, convalescing in a war hospital, and they share work, and Sassoon gives Wilfred Owen some advice um, about his work, but it's, I don't know, it feels like they could just as easily be pretty much anywhere else. There's no real sense of how much they like each other. We just don't know them. We don't know them as people. The whole thing feels like it's, it's, it's happening at the, at the wrong end of a telescope. The review that I was mentioning before was in the Sydney Morning Herald, and this writer says, Sassoon's relationship with Wilfred Owen is well known, and earlier films have tried to tell that story. I don't know which movies they are. Maybe I should watch them. Davies rips through their meeting at a Scottish mental hospital. I'm not sure about mental hospital. Is that, do we say that? Do we still say mental hospital? Okay. Uh, Scottish mental hospital. Their immediate devotion to each other and the pain of their parting as if he has bigger fish to fry. So, yeah, that happens in about the first 30 minutes of the film and then Wilfred Owen is gone. And he doesn't have any bigger fish to fry. The rest of this movie is just Siegfried Sassoon being sad. We watch Sassoon have these relationships with these men who are just terrible people. They're really mean. They're not funny. They're not kind. They're not interesting. And we have no idea why Sassoon is hanging out with them at all. I practically had to force my way in past the stage doorman. Yeah, you were lucky. He's been told to shoot anyone not on my list. Why wasn't I on the list? For Christ's sake! Look, it's been a long run, Siegfried. I am tired. I am exhausted. I'm sorry, I don't mean to be petty, but I... I am very jealous of you. Yes, well... Affairs are always messy. Who can know the secrets of a human heart? Usually the people who don't have one. Well, my, my, hasn't it gone chilly in here? So we end up spending over two hours with Siegfried Sassoon. We somehow end up with pretty much no idea who he is. And the film ends up with a long shot of him crying, lasts for over a minute. This is, as I said, Davy's special move. It's, it's very, very, very depressing. It's very depressing. <laughs> um, it does include Sassoon's poetry. The cast reads it at different points in the film but unlike in A Quiet Passion where Dickinson's voice kind of it felt like she was she was also part of the film she was contributing to the film through her words this just feels like 
a school assembly. Give me your hand, my brother. Search my face. Look in these eyes, lest I should think of shame. For we have made an end of all things base. We are returning by the road we came. The reason this has pissed me off so much is because this just happens too often. Patterson is the exception to a very depressing rule, which is that poets on screen, poets at the movies, are drunks, depressed, bitter, and surrounded by failed relationships. And uh, is your life like that? (laughs) I hope not. I hope not. I mean... I have bad days. It's been a shitty week. Um, Yeah, I haven't been sleeping and uh, there's been a bunch of stressful things happening. But, like, God, none of that has anything to do with the fact that I'm a poet. It has to do with the fact that I'm a person in a very confusing and, and stressful world. Anyway, I can just point to too many examples of this. A quiet passion, there's not much drinking or... um debauchery but there's an awful lot of crying Davy's um, special trick in that film is he puts the camera in the middle of the room starts on one person slowly pans around the room and by the time he gets back to the start everybody's crying and we don't know why <laughs> something to do with poetry <laughs> shrug I don't know um, there's a movie about Elizabeth Bishop called reaching for the moon same thing lots of tears Lots of drinking, lots of drinking over the drafts of poems. I just can't think of an example where the life of a poet has made it to screen and we haven't ended up feeling like somehow the fact that they're a poet explains the fact that their life is a complete wreck. There's another film I watched this last week to test out this theory called Set Fire to the Stars. You've never heard of it. Don't worry. You don't need to watch it. It came out in 2014. Elijah Wood's in it. Sure. I mean, he basically looks like he'd rather be anywhere else. Um, the, The description of it from Canopy here is, based on true events, Elijah Wood stars as John Malcolm Brennan. You've never heard of him, don't worry. The the New York academic who brought Dylan Thomas to America. Actor and co-writer Celan Jones, I'm almost certainly mispronouncing that, plays the volatile celebrity poet, tormented by anonymity. Well, he's that's weird. He's not he's not anonymous. Everybody knows who he is in this movie. Alcohol and the abyss, who scandalized the Manhattan literati of the fifties. For scandalized in there, just replace scandalized with was a lecherous asshole. exactly what you brought to America. So this is Andy Goddard's first movie. He's done a bunch of TV before this. You don't need to know who he is either, but basically he did some Downton Abbey and Law and Order and other things like that. So he he went for the full-length feature. And again, it's full of um, – it's got a script full of lines that no human being would ever say. At one point, Elijah Wood says to another character, completely seriously, I used to think I was a Harvard professor of poetry. But now, and then he just looks away. <laughs> he just looks into the distance. There's a lot of 
urgent violins trying to make up for a total lack of stakes. Like, Elijah Wood is taking Dylan Thomas on tour around some universities in the US, but Thomas keeps getting drunk and making things hard. Does, does that sound boring? Well, it is very boring. It's very boring. And as boring as that is, most of the time, they're not even on tour. They just fuck off back to somewhere up upstate New York in Connecticut to this little cabin. And we get to watch Dylan Thomas be bored and not be able to play chess. The two characters don't even care about each other. Not, not only do we not care about the characters, they don't care about each other. They don't want to be around each other. Dylan Thomas doesn't want to be on tour. And after the first night with him, there is no way that Elijah, Elijah Wood should want to stay with him either. If we get anything from this movie, it's an even more depressing lesson than what we get from the Sassoon movie, which is poets can do whatever they want from light sexual harassment to public displays of drunkenness to pissing off the entire Yale faculty. Um, In fact, there is a moment where it seems like Dylan Thomas might have done something far, far worse than light sexual harassment, but uh, we don't know. The filmmaker doesn't care to explain what that moment is. But yeah, basically poets can do whatever they want because they're very talented and we should forgive them. They can't help it because being a poet is to be sad. Being a poet is to be unable to maintain a relationship. And above all, poets are only responsible to their work. In this movie, the work comes as if by magic. It's not through effort. But no matter what, if, if they write a good poem, then the music soars and everything is forgiven. And death shall have no dominion. Under the windings of the sea, they lying long shall not die windily, twisting on racks when sinews give way, strapped to a wheel, yet they shall not die. This is utter bullshit. <laughs> this is utter bullshit. And I, I know poets who use this as an excuse to be generally shitty unreliable people. Make no mistake, being a good artist is no excuse for being a terrible person ever. Even if you have beautiful violins. All right, so I'm going to calm down. I'm going to take a breath. I'm going to take a breath here. How do we do better? How can we do better than this? How do we get uh, the life of a poet on screen that's fun and interesting and worth making a movie of. Thinking about all this is really making me reassess Patterson, you know, because there's a lot of problems with that movie. Patterson's relationship with his wife is pretty fucked up. <laughs> she basically just stays home and paints the shower curtain. And I think when I talked about it with Matthew, I think it was the first time that we spoke actually. And um I was probably trying to say a bunch of clever sounding things, but I think where we landed was that this is not representative of the life of a poet. But actually, I think it's the closest we've ever gotten. I think it might be because, yeah, Patterson's life is is really sedate. It's really predictable. Uh, he He's a bus driver. He gets up same time every day without an alarm, doesn't own a phone. 
um, goes and drives his bus, comes home, goes to the bar, has one drink, and then comes home and does it all again. Yeah, Patterson might be the the truest to life of what it's like to be a poet. There's still just like a huge gap between that beautiful, dreamy depiction and the actual life of a poet, which is essentially just emails and um, looks pretty much the same as anybody else's life, really, really. But, okay, historical figures, you know, we want to make a biographical movie about a poet and we want to do it in a way that um, doesn't end up with tragedy. And I keep thinking about this and I, I'm really not having much luck. <laughs> I'm not. Because the first person who came to mind... And I was surprised in a way that we don't have this movie already was Edna St. Vincent Millay. Imagine that film. I read this great um, piece a couple of weeks ago about Edna St. Vincent Millay and, and it starts out like this. It, it quotes, a, um, quotes the critic Edmund Wilson talking about Millay and he says, she was one of those women whose features are not perfect and who in their moment of dimness may not seem even pretty, but who, excited by the blood or the spirit, become almost supernaturally beautiful. And the writer says, Wilson remained in love with her for years, even after she'd refused his offer of marriage. It was as if he was enchanted, caught under the spell that she cast on all ages and both sexes. My first thought was, this could be great. We're going to have Jill Soloway to direct. We'll have Harry Neff place Edna St. Vincent Millay. It'll be like those scenes in Transparent where they go back to old Berlin, hazy light and and beautiful jewellery, and it'll be very sexy and very fun. But Edna St. Vincent Millay wasn't happy. (laughs) And she she drank a lot and she died early. Um, So, okay, we're not going to do that film. But then I thought, could we make the Frank O'Hara movie? I mean, this essentially writes itself, right? This is a step away from them. It's my lunch hour, so I go for a walk among the hum-coloured cabs. First down the sidewalk, where labourers feed their dirty glistening torsos, sandwiches and Coca-Cola, with yellow helmets on. They protect them from falling bricks, I guess. Then onto the avenue, where skirts are flipping above heels and blow up over grates. The sun is hot, but the cabs stir up the air. I look at bargains in wristwatches. There are cats playing in sawdust. You could film that. You could just film that. And then O'Hara could go to a party and there could be all these other New York school poets and they could chat and say interesting things and have sex with each other. It'd be great. That'd be great. Um, But yeah, tragic end. So we're not getting away from that. But we're getting closer because O'Hara is not, he's not unhappy because he's a poet. He is, poetry's not ruining his life. And then I thought, okay, I should probably try to think of an example of an Australian poet that we could make a movie of. I've gone for a challenging one. I think we should make the Gwen Harwood movie. Stick with me here. (laughs) I know that Gwen Harwood is not the most dramatic figure. She had a very straight-laced life, born and raised in Brizzy, went to Brisbane Girls Grammar, accomplished pianist. But what you may not know is... She was both the student and mistress of her music teacher at 18 years old. She was 
in love, unrequited love, with a poet called Peter Benny for her whole life, but ended up in a relatively unhappy marriage to her husband Bill, Bill Harwood, and went with him from Brizzy all the way down to Tasmania, lived in what she thought of apparently as pretty much exile in Hobart. I think there's a lot of a lot of frustration, a lot of longing in this. She had a bunch of affairs with people who really apparently weren't really worth her time and attention. There's a lot of there's a lot of yearning, a lot of longing, a lot of frustration. I think that this could be interesting. I think that this could be, you know, shades of like marriage story, but the way I think we should do it is we should get the guy who directed Acute Misfortune. We should get Tom Wright to direct and make that same kind of film. He does know how to jump back and forth in time. He does know how to collage in stuff that isn't um, filmed on set. He does it brilliantly. I think that Acute Misfortune, which is the adaptation of Eric Jensen's novel about um, hanging out with Adam Cullen, who was, yes, a violent, drunken asshole. <laughs> oh, God. Um, yeah, but but this movie, it's not in love with the violence, but it has that kind of Australian brutality that I think runs all the way from, from Wake in Fright through David Island. And I think that if you applied that to Harwood's life, you could end up with something that that said something really interesting about what it was like to be uh, a, a, a woman writer, a female poet in, you know, the 50s, 60s, 70s. And don't forget that you have this episode in the early 1960s when she submitted to the Bulletin um, under the pseudonym Walter Lehman and she got these poems published, these sonnets, two sonnets together and then down the side formed an acrostic which they didn't see so long bulletin fuck all editors and I think the response to that the fact that everybody kind of just laughed there were headlines that said things like great poem hoax experts fooled by naughty sonnets uh, and another one that said Taz housewife in hoax of year and the bulletin basically said, oh, this is a sad jest. A genuine literary hoax would have some point to it. Well, it does have a point to it, which is that she couldn't get published unless you thought her name was Walter. So that's, that seems interesting to me. I think this is, this is worth filming. Look, we prob- we'll probably never end up with uh, the poetry equivalent of Elvis, thank God. Uh, we'll, we'll be safe from Baz, I think, if we, as poets. But maybe we could get a little bit further away from all the drinking and, and crying and early death. Maybe. It's just an idea. I would love to see a little bit more um, joy, a little bit more pleasure, a little bit less devastation. And I would love to uncouple the narrative of I'm a writer, I'm a poet, from the narrative of I'm a miserable human being. <laughs> I think these two things are separate. They can both be true at the same time, but they don't have a direct correlation to one another. I don't think so anyway. Let me know if you have better ideas. I'm sure you do. I'm sure you got a better, um, a much better movie pitch 
write to me, poetrysayspod at gmail.com, and let me know if I've missed uh, a really great film about a poet, aside from Patterson, putting Patterson to one side. Let me know if I've missed something. I'm sure I have. I'm going to end here with a poem by a listener, Adam Ford. Adam might be the kindest man in all of Australian poetry, maybe all of poetry at all. He's a really dedicated listener and I love hearing from him. And Adam has just put out his um, his latest collection called The Third Fruit is a Bird. I think there's a gentleness and a kindness in this poem that it would be it would be great to uh, to acknowledge that this exists a little bit more often, um, and to get away from the darkness. <laughs> Can we get away from the darkness? Okay, this is this is from Adam's collection. The third fruit is a bird. I will link to his website so you can get a copy. He also has put together just the most adorable little chapbook called Science Fiction Barbarians in Love, which is just photos of he-men um in love and it's kind of like humans of new york but with he-men and they love each other and it's it's gorgeous but yes i'm going to end with this poem it's called Mothwing kiss i think this is the strongest poem in the collection that's just my take adam Mothwing kiss i dreamed the kiss of moth wings on my cheek and woke to find a pair against my back each one an inch above my shoulder blade each one as soft as breath against my skin i stood The tips reached almost to my waist. I felt a strength beneath their velvet touch. I felt a little strange next morning as I dressed before the mirror in my room and watched their pattern shifting in the light and watched them with my head turned as I flexed and spread them out as wide as they would go, then tucked them back to run along my spine, then tucked them in my shirt to hold them close beneath my clothes. I kept them to myself all day at work, a secret from the world. All day at work I felt them there, their warmth. They trembled in their hiding place as soft as moonlight, curving snug against my back. As moonlight filters through the evening air, some instinct makes them strain against my shirt, insisting that I take myself outside. Insisting that I spread them wide apart, stand naked to the waist in evening air, embrace the gentle pulling of the moon, embrace the wind, the night and all the stars. Stand tiptoe as my wings begin to stir, not lifting me but lightening my step. Not lifting me but strong enough to make me stand a little taller than I would, enough to give my back a straighter line, enough to make the shadow that I cast look like the man that I would like to be, a man with wings beneath a cloudless sky. Nobody died. Uh, Everyone was fine and somebody got some moth wings and felt pretty good about it. The end. The name's Rosie. Oh, right. Yes. Well, hello, Rosie. Whatever. What's your story? If you have one. I'm a poet. Poetry professor, Manhattan. This is my friend's first trip to America. I'm his Boswell. His amanuensis. You must be a poet. You talk funny. So, who's your friend? Dylan. Now, he really is a poet. And a famous one, too, from Wales. Huh, like Moby Dick. (sighs) Not exactly. He's touring America reciting his work and the work of others. 
Poetry. Hey? Aren't you both men? Yes. Isn't that funny? I get off in an hour. Oh, we'll be long gone by then. Okay, Mr. Poetry, make sure you pay.